This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Joseph Goldstein. Joseph is an author and meditation teacher and has been leading insight and loving-kindness meditation retreats worldwide since 1974. He's the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, where he is one of the organization's guiding teachers. He's the author of the Sounds True audio learning course, Insight Meditation, a step-by-step course on how to meditate, which is both a home study course and an online course offered through Sounds True, co-presented with Sharon Salzberg. And Joseph is also the creator of a new three-volume series called Abiding in Mindfulness, Advanced Teachings and Practical Guidance on the Satipatthana Sutra. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, I spoke with Joseph about his study of the Satipatthana Sutra as the central teaching of mindfulness meditation, how his own mindfulness practice has evolved over the past four decades, and what it might mean to live without clinging to any sense of I, me, or mine. Here's my conversation with Joseph Goldstein. Joseph, you've worked with Sounds True to create a three-volume series on the Satipatthana Sutra. And, you know, this three-volume series is something like 36 CDs, lots and lots and lots of teachings. And to begin with, I'd love to know why you picked this particular sutra to spend so much time teaching on in such depth. Why this sutra? Uh, Well, the Satipatthana Sutra is... uh the, I would say the core uh, discourse of the Buddha in terms of outlining uh, the practice of mindfulness meditation. Uh, so it's kind of the central, the central teaching uh, for this kind of meditation. And the Buddha's declaration right in the beginning of the discourse that this is the direct way for the overco- for the overcoming of suffering and the direct path to liberation it's a very clear and unambiguous statement of the import of the teaching um, of course i had i had read this for many many years you know at different times uh, i was re-inspired by a book about this sutta by uh, venerable analio um, he's a german monk who had been in sri lanka for some time and he wrote a book called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization, which itself is really a wonderful book, and it re-inspired my interest in going back to the text and teaching directly from the text. My intention in the beginning was to give this series of talks at the Forest Refuge, our long-term practice center, where I teach for two months every year. And at first I thought, you know, there might be a series of three or four or five talks about the sutta. 
but as I got into it and was just going through it line by line, it was amazing how rich it was, you know, and the, the depth of the teaching and the extent of things covered in it, it just kept uh, developing more and more, and it turned out, as you know, to be a series of 46 Dharma talks. Uh, and I had no idea that it would turn out that way when I started, but give some indication of the richness, you know, of the discourse and the wealth of teachings that it contains. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned this phrase, the direct path, and, you know, that phrase, this is the direct way, the direct path, is used in by a lot of different traditions and, and teachers. I mean, I think immediately as you say that of the Advaita teachers who say, you know, the direct path is not to practice anything, and we certainly don't need you know, 46 Dharma talks to um, make our way there. So how would you address that? How is this more direct? (laughs) Well, of course, different traditions emphasize uh, different methods, you know, and methodologies. Um, And for different people, you know, certain certain methods and vocabularies uh, resonate more than with others. Uh, I think in the end... uh, it always comes back to practice in one way or another. It's either practicing stabilizing the recognition of awareness, uh, or it could be practicing seeing through the things which obscure the awareness. Uh, But there are very few people who can hear a teaching and have their minds uh, fully liberated in the moment of hearing it, you know. So I think for almost everybody, there may be some extraordinary individuals like that, but I think for almost everybody, uh, freeing the mind from the, the tendencies which cause suffering, you know, the the deeply rooted tendencies of of uh, desire and greed and aversion and ignorance, uh, these are not superficial habit patterns in the mind. And so, in one way or another, almost everybody needs some form of practice. And this particular teaching is just extremely systematic and comprehensive and contains within it many different approaches. And that's one of the things I appreciate about it so much, that within it we can find many different doorways into understanding. In just a moment, I want to delve a bit more deeply into this structure of the sutra. But first, I want to talk a little bit about how you work with a text and what you think is possible for somebody in that kind of contemplation, sitting with a text, and and how that goes for you. How do you actually contemplate a text as you came up with these 46 Dharma talks? Well, um, you know, I think I think that will be different depending on the level of experience uh, people have in practice. Uh, a discourse like this can be read at many different levels. So I'll just give you one example <coughs> of uh, how I learned from teaching about it. Um, I've been practicing for a long time. I first went to India when I was... Uh, 23, you know, and that's quite a few years ago now. Uh, and I, I received the teachings from my first teacher in Bodh Gaya and have been practicing for a long time. 
And the basic instruction, you know, the basic beginning instruction, it, it evolves over time, is to sit and, you know, feel the breath and bring the attention to that as a way of developing some concentration and mindfulness. So I've been practicing like this for, <coughs> excuse me, for many years. Uh, and then in reading the sutta and beginning to develop the talks from it, uh, the Buddha actually gives some systematic steps for working with the breath. He outlines four different steps, um, which I had never really done systematically because it's not how it had been taught. Um, but in looking at the sutta again from the from the perspective of um, organizing talks about it and teaching from it, I thought, well, the Buddha laid out these particular steps of working with the breath. Maybe I should try doing it, you know, in that way. And it was very illuminating, you know, to to see, yes, you know, there was some value in that. And I just learned something new about something as simple as being with the breath. That's just one little example. And as we go, you know, as we went through the sutta, they're very practical instructions with regard to different elements of our experience. And so just, you know, uh, reading it and applying a particular instruction and bringing it into my own practice, it began to expand my sense of uh, ways of practice, you know, and then finding which aspects were were more useful uh, and then incorporating them. Well, now you have me curious about these four different steps to working with the Mm -hmm. breath. Can you share with us what those are? Yeah, uh, and this is this is right out of the discourse. It says, you know, a bhikkhu, and in this case, a bhikkhu could refer to all of us who are practicing, uh, that we, uh, with an in-breath, we know we're breathing in, with an out-breath, we know we're breathing out. So it's that simple. It's just a simple knowing of an in-out-breath. In the second step, it's knowing whether the breath is long or short. You know, breathe in, knowing whether the breath is whether the in breath is a long one or a short one and whether the out breath is a long one or a short one. Again, this seems like such a simple thing, but as I actually began to practice it and teach it and report back from other meditators, what that what practicing that step did was to deeply impress the mind with the understanding that it doesn't matter whether the breath is long or short, that one can be equally mindful of any kind of breath. And that counteracts, you know, a tendency that some meditators have, you know, of wanting to make the breath a certain way, to make it more peaceful or however, you know, to have just long breaths. And it's just, it's a way of reminding ourselves that mindfulness can be with the breath, however it is. So it's just, it's just a, kind of a subtlety or a nuance of how we're relating to the breath. In the third step, there's an interesting change of language where the Buddha says instead of simply knowing the in-breath or out-breath, he uses the words to train the mind. You know, So this implies already a slight intentionality uh, that we're bringing to it. And in the third step, training the mind to be with the whole breath body. 
now this has been interpreted in different ways. You know, some people interpret it as meaning to be with the entire body of the breath, that is from the beginning through the middle to the end. Some people interpret it to mean to be with the whole, the breath through the whole body. And so I suggest people simply experiment and see which works better for them. But here there's a there's that kind of slight intentionality of training the mind to sustain the attention on the breath. So it's a little bit uh, more than the first two steps, which is the simple knowing. And then in the fourth step, it's, again, a training of the mind to calm the formations with each in and out breath. That is to calm the body, to calm the mind. And I found this particularly interesting. It's something I had never done. Uh, and I thought to myself, well, how does one do that? And I just started experimenting. And often when I would sit, I would just use the word as, as I would breathe in and out. I would simply remind the mind, you know, I would, I would repeat the word calming or calm the breath or calming the formations. And it was amazing. Just, just that gentle reminder, uh, the immediate effect of it in terms of calming the formations. So again, these, these are just very systematic and specific instructions that I had never done systematically before I started actually teaching the text. That makes a lot of sense. Can you uh, help our listeners understand what you mean by formations, calming the formations? Yeah, for- formations is, is a tech, in a way, a technical Buddhist uh, terminology. It just means the different elements of mind and body. You know, it's it's the different formations or, or factors of mind, qualities of mind. So it's it's calming the qualities of the mind. It's calming the body. Okay, now let's just learn a little bit more about this uh, sutra. Now, you use the word sutta instead of right. sutra. Well, why is that? I, I know it's not because well, you have, you know. Sutta is the Pali, the Pali term. Sutra is the Sanskrit term. So it's the, it's, the same, it's the same word, just the difference between Pali and Sanskrit. Okay, and tell us a little bit about the, the structure of the sutta itself. Mindfulness of 
dharmas. It would be dharma in Sanskrit, dhamma in Pali, same word. And the best, the best translation that I've come across, which uh, expresses what's contained in that pasture, that domain of mindfulness, is uh, mindfulness of different categories of experience. So that would include things like the hindrances and the sense spaces and the factors of enlightenment and the Four Noble Truths. So it's, in a way, it's, uh, yeah, how how different elements of the mind and body function. That's all contained in the fourth foundation. Um, and, and then with each of these foundations, uh, the Buddha uh, then... Uh, gives many different ways of practicing the mindfulness of each of these foundations. There's so many different ways of practicing mindfulness of the body or of feelings or of the mind or of dhammas. Um, and then there's also a refrain after each section, which is quite interesting, which highlights... Uh, other ways or particular insights, ways of practicing with each of the foundations and insights uh, that emerge from them. Uh, so some of the things included in the refrain and uh, are things like uh, noticing that all of these different experiences arise and pass away. And so it's it highlights the importance of the insight into impermanence. And there's another aspect of the refrain which is quite interesting and not often talked about is uh, the Buddha repeating, and it's repeated many times. The refrain happens, I forget the exact number, but it might be like 13 different times in the sutta, where the Buddha says to contemplate all these various aspects internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And so that's a very interesting area to explore, how we can, because we usually think of meditation as being very internal, you know, and being aware of our inner processes. And the Buddha is saying to apply these foundations of mindfulness externally as well. So just to explore different ways of doing that is quite interesting. Can you say a little bit more about what that would be like? How would I contemplate externally? Yeah, well... Uh, there are a few different examples, some which come uh, from stories right from the Buddhist time. I'm thinking particularly there was one nun, uh, her name was Patachara. Uh, she, had, she had a lot of, a lot of tragedy in her life. Uh, she ended up becoming a nun. She had, and her, she relates her stories in, a, in there's a collection of text called uh, uh, the, the Teragata and the Terigata, that is the songs of the songs of the nuns and the songs of the monks. They're basically they're enlightenment stories which had been collected. So this comes out of that collection. Uh, and Patachara was describing how you know she practiced for years and she didn't feel like she was making any progress at all. And then one day she overturned, you know, a jug of water and she just watched the water disappear, you know, into the ground. So that was an external observation. 
you know, just seeing the disappearance of the water, then said she went back into her little hut where a candle was burning. And as she put out the candle, the flame, in the moment of it going out, she was just watching this whole process, in the moment of it going out, her mind was liberated. You know, so I, I like that story because it just, it points to the fact that just through a careful mindfulness or observation of things external, you know, to the world around us, sometimes uh, those observations can trigger trigger the release of the mind. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it came about because it was all on the foundation of a lot of practice. But the actual moment of liberation came, you know, from this external observation. So that's, that's one example. Mm-hmm. One, one, one that's you know we we can all I think easily relate to. Uh, I've had this experience many times, both when I'm on retreat or not on retreat. Sometimes, if we're simply observing someone who is being very mindful, you know, maybe do, walking, doing very mindful walking or eating or whatever. Just in watching them be mindful, it induces mindfulness in us. You know, and it's it's just an interesting experience to see how that external observation actually deepens our own practice. Um, uh, there are many many examples. There's, there's a sutta where the Buddha. You know, there's a lot of teaching about right speech. Uh, the Buddha, in one sutta, talked about. Uh, right listening, how to listen to people speaking. And there's a very, very uh, challenging teaching here where he just, the Buddha describes how people may speak to us in different ways, you know, either truthfully or untruthfully, harshly or gently, you know, with an intent for our happiness or an intent to harm. So he goes through this long list of different ways people may speak to us. And then he says, and this is the great challenge, regardless of how someone addresses us, we should abide with a heart of loving kindness, compassionate for their welfare. So when I read that, I always kind of sit up straight in the sense of imagining you know, how I or others might react if somebody was speaking to us harshly lying with an intent to harm. <laughs> you know, the challenge of abiding with a heart of loving kindness, compassionate to their welfare, uh, would be a challenge. And the way to practice that is precisely the practice of staying mindful of how the other person is speaking. You know, just as we can be mindful of the difficult experiences within ourselves, we're mindful of them without reactivity. In this case, we're mindful externally. We're simply notice how oh, this person is speaking untruthfully with an intent to harm. And that mindfulness of it, rather than being caught up in our own reaction, allows us to abide compassionate for their welfare. Not, not easy to do, but it, it's a powerful example of how mindfulness can be applied externally. 
So it's all, these are just a few examples. Yeah, that's very clear. Thank you. I'm curious, Joseph, when you were preparing these 46 Dharma talks, were you working with an English version of the Satipatthana Sutra or both an English and a Pali version? No, definitely English. I'm, I'm, not, a, uh, I'm not a Pali scholar. Uh, unfortunately, you know, there, there are such good translations now. Uh, yeah, so it makes, it makes it easy to do that. One, one of the things that happened as I was uh, using the translations, and uh, I was also using Venerable Analayo's book as well, uh, and also Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations of the sutta. Uh, and each of them also had many notes and references to other suttas. And so with each talk, as I was, you know, studying it and researching it, uh, all their footnotes and references, I began to look them up. And so it just, you know, it expanded so beautifully to many other suttas the Buddha gave. And is the idea that these are the actual words of the Buddha, I mean, do you believe that? Or do you believe these were written however many years later? Yeah, uh, that's that's hard. I I think uh, from from my understanding of kind of the history and the evolution of Buddhism and the teachings, it seems like these are probably the closest, you know, to the original teachings. Uh, they were they were passed down orally for hundreds of years before they were written down, um, and in my in my reading and understanding. Uh, Often people think, well, you know, because it was passed down orally, it probably it went through a lot of uh, permutations. Uh, I've read, and again, I'm not a I'm not an expert, in, you know, in this process, in the historical process of it all. Uh, but I re- I have read that, uh, in fact, the oral tradition can be as accurate as the written one. Uh, how can that be when we can't even like play the telephone game correctly? Right, yeah. <laughs> because people in those days uh, uh, were much more adept at it because they weren't as distracted as we are. Uh, you know, and there were uh, whole groups of monks which were, who would uh, rehearse, you know, these texts together, and each group would rehearse different aspects. Or different sections of the teachings, uh, and it was the comment was made in this, you know, in this regard that when things are written, and especially in you know in those early days, uh, mistakes could often be uh, carried over if there was a mistake in the uh, transcription. You know, somebody writing it down and making a mistake, and then everything that follows from that. You know that mistake is passed on, so I think you know it's, it's probably equal, uh, probably equally. Uh, I don't know what the right word is. You know, valid uh, transmissions of the teachings, undoubtedly not perfect. You know, but as I said, the, it's probably as close as we can get, and there's such inner consistency to the teachings. Uh, 
and most important, even aside from from all of this, uh, when we apply them, they work. <laughs> so that's that's the that's the final measure. Did you encounter any aspect of the Satipatthana Sutra where you thought, "Wow, this really needs to be updated"? You know, we've got new information now here in the 21st century, and this this could use uh, an an update. Uh, I didn't really, you know, because uh, if, even so, something that comes to mind, you know, that uh, one might think that, and and I have thought it at different times, in the section of mindfulness of the body, you know, and the elements, so the way the elements are described and mindfulness of them, or in terms of the, the ancient system of, you know, the earth, air, fire, water elements, and what they represent, the experience of, you know, hardness or softness or heat or whatever. And so I would wonder, well, you know, how would, if the Buddha were living today, in a, uh, how would he describe the elements? It probably wouldn't in terms of earth, air, fire, and water, it'd probably have a different description. Um, so the terminology might be different, but then when you actually are applying the teachings to one's experience, it's not those words that are important. We could use very conventional language for describing how we feel the body, You know what, how we describe the sensations that we feel. Uh, like like hardness or softness or pressure or vibration. So these are very ordinary terms that relate to our actual experience. Um, so it's in in things like that, you know, one might wonder, well, would he have used different terms for the elements? And maybe he would have. How might a 21st century Buddha describe the elements, are you imagining? <laughs> well, uh, I think you'd have to ask a, a physicist that. Oh, okay. So you didn't have something in mind when you, when no, you thought no, of that. No, I gotcha. No. Uh, you know, in terms of you know, different elemental particles or something like that. Neutrons and protons and subatomic particles and quarks and uh, I mean another another interesting aspect though is and this is a little uh, tangential perhaps uh, but the way one can experience these elements I think is quite different uh, if somebody has attained to very high levels of concentration, you know, in, in the poly they're called jhanas or absorptions, and then applying that power of concentration to the experience of the body and the elements. Uh, this is not in my my own experience. This is about things I've read. Uh, one actually has a there's a very microscopic experience of these elements of the body and, and how they manifest. So there might be a deeper meaning even of 
the terminology the Buddha used then is apparent to our ordinary experience. So I don't know if that was clear or not. Yeah, it is. That's interesting. It's just there are different, you know, there there are different levels of perception depending on the power of our concentration. Yeah, that makes sense. I read someplace in an interview with you, Joseph, the, the following. Recently, my practice has gotten simpler and simpler. It basically comes down to one thing that the Buddha said. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. And what I'd like to know is within the context of the Satipatthana Sutra, what are some of the key teachings that illuminate this for you? Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Well, in a way, the whole sutta does because uh, that's the meaning of mindfulness. Mindfulness as a particular factor or quality of mind means the mind which is aware of what's arising without grasping, without aversion, and without ignorance, without identifying with it. Uh, And so in this respect, and this is an important distinction, uh, mindfulness is different than recognition. We can recognize that something is present and not be mindful. Uh, But I think that's often confusing, and at different times in my own practice, I've confused Yeah, can you take that a little slower? Help me there with that. Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, there was one time in my practice, this goes back many years now, but when uh, I, was, I was experiencing a lot of fear, and that was, that was the primary emotion coming up, and it was very primal. It wasn't fear about anything in particular. It was just opening to that deep, deep pattern, you know, emotional pattern. And I was practicing and noting it and noticing it in fear, fear. Uh, this, this was over a period of many months, you know, where this would be a predominant uh, quality. But it still stayed very, it felt like it stayed very locked in. Uh, and then at one point, I, was, I remember I was doing some walking meditation, and something shifted. And the shift was expressed in the thought if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And what happened was it was in that moment, it was the first moment that I genuinely accepted it. All the time before I had recognized it, I knew that fear was there. And I was even noting it, you know, noticing it, but contained within the noticing was aversion. I didn't like it. I was noticing it in order for it to go away. But I hadn't realized that, you know, until that shift into acceptance happened. And as soon as that happened, as soon as I, if this is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. It was quite amazing in that moment of acceptance where there was true mindfulness. Then that whole mass of fear just washed through the thing that had felt so locked in. It just became another part of the passing show. And even you know, when it arises, has arisen since, uh, it's, much, it's much easier just to be aware of it and to let it arise and pass away without that identification. So 
this is the very meaning of mindfulness. You know, so every time the Buddha is talking about being mindful of these various domains of the body or feelings of the mind, it's implying being aware of it without clinging to it as I or mind. So what you're saying is that in genuine mindfulness, there is not the sense of I, me, or mine? Right. But, right. I, I can imagine that that might be stunning for some of our listeners to hear. Yeah, <laughs> well, it, it is pretty stunning. Yeah, that their experience uh, of mindfulness might be something like, oh, I'm aware, I'm aware of the feeling of my foot touching the ground right, right. now as I walk mindfully. Well, it's it's very, uh, you know, this process is going on moment to moment very, very rapidly. So, for example, uh, we might be mindful, truly mindful of the sensation of the foot touching the ground, you know, just feeling the sensation, being mindful of it, not being identified with the sensation, but we might be identified with the knowing. And that's why part, part of the uh, part, part of the instructions of the sutta, you know, including the sutta, especially when we get to mindfulness of the mind and of the dharmas, uh, we really begin to see and to practice being mindful of the knowing aspect as well so that we're not identified even with that. But that can be quite subtle. You know, it's easier, for example, to see thoughts come and go or sensations come and go or, you know, even emotions and not be identified with them, you know, after some point. But this identification with the knowing in which there's a creation of a knower, of an observer, that, we could say, is the last holdout of self. You know, it's, it's where we back into the corner from which we're observing everything. Uh, and so there are just different ways of practicing not identifying with consciousness itself, not identifying with awareness. But that's, you know, this this goes into uh, just greater and greater subtleties of practice. There's one section that you address that I'm particularly curious about, which is the experience of volition or choice and how, as we're quote-unquote abiding in mindfulness, volition or choice happens without this sense of I, me, or mine. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that? <laughs> well, um, I think choice and volition are actually two different qualities. That volition in the Buddhist, uh, within the Buddhist framework, has a very specific meaning. And that is, it's almost like which initiates an action. You know, so it's, it, it's not intention uh, in the sense of motivation 
or even choice. It's just that energetic impulse. So in other words, before we reach for something, there's an intention to reach. The choice may have been made previously. I'm going to reach for the door. I'm going to reach for whatever. So that choice may have already been made, but what actually initiates the physical action is this factor of intention. So it's more more like an energetic impulse that initiates an action. Uh, And one can just see, you know, we can become mindful of that intention arising. Uh, And we see it just like anything else. We can see it. uh, We can experience it in the same way we would experience a sound or another sensation in the body. There's just that impulse arising, initiating in action. Choice is another factor. Uh, And this also, you know, the... Choices, choices arise in the mind, conditioned by a lot of different, uh, a lot of different factors in the mind. Some, sometimes choices are conditioned, you know, by greed or by love or by compassion or by anger. And just as we see, you know, the conditioned nature of choice, uh, we're able to see it and experience it as something arising in the mind but also as an impersonal process. It's arising out of certain conditions. Uh, And when we're mindful, and this is the great gift of mindfulness, uh, when we can be mindful of this process, whether it's coming in at the moment of a choice arising in the mind, whether it's coming in in the moment of the actual intention that initiates the action, when we're mindful, then there's the space where we have the opportunity to have wisdom arise, discerning, is this skillful, is it unskillful? You know, is this worth doing, is it not worth doing? You know, is it helpful or not helpful? And without mindfulness, then we're simply acting out all the particular, ha- our own particular habit patterns of conditioning. So one of the ways, for example, of understanding the selfless nature of things, even like choice or intention, uh, one of the doorways in uh, opening to the insight of selflessness is by seeing the momentary arising and passing of all these phenomena. So impermanence becomes the doorway to selflessness. And so as we just observe this over and over again, we see it's just an unfolding process. You know, one moment conditioning the next, conditioning the next. So I don't know if that exactly answered your question. What's so radical, I think, about what you're saying, the experience I'm having listening, is that this idea of being mindful is something that's been absorbed, I think, into contemporary culture with a sense of self intact, fully intact. I mean, that's, I think, how most people use it, and even, I think, a lot of mindfulness teachers. Uh And Uh and so by listening to this deconstruction and hearing you really talk about in mindfulness 
there is no clinging to I, me, or mine if you're truly being mindful. I think it, it clarifies what genuine mindfulness is in a way that is, um, I'm experiencing is extremely illuminating. Yeah, I think it is, and I think it, it, it points to the depths of the teaching and why this sutta is so important and why the Buddha could say in the beginning, this is the direct path to liberation. <laughs> you know, if, if mindfulness were simply, you know, the recognition of what was happening, but without these deeper implications, it wouldn't, it wouldn't particularly be a path to freedom, you know, to, to ultimate freedom. Or awakening, and so uh, you know, I think I think mindfulness uh, is being used or understood on many levels, and probably probably all of them are helpful on their own level. The, the, I think the only danger would be that if uh, people assuming that you know, a more conventional level of understanding mindfulness is the whole show, you know, and they, then, and they don't actually explore the deeper meaning and application of it. But at whatever level it's being practiced or understood, it's probably helpful. And here you are talking about not clinging to any sense of I, me, or mine in terms of the sort of simple essence of -hmm. your current practice. But I'm Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you feel some sense of individuality, personalness, human uniqueness, (laughs) some kind of Joseph Goldstein-iness. Definitely. And how do you make sense out of that? How do you you make sense out of that? Personality doesn't go away. Uh, And... I also still have, you know, lots of work to do in this regard. So, uh, but what is personality? Personality is, is just the pattern. You know, it's the pattern of our thoughts and emotions, and uh, so the pattern is there. And you know, we each have a unique pattern uh, that's quite recognizable. Uh, so that that's there. It, but we can begin to understand that uh, <laughs> it gets a little hard to talk about. Uh, the pattern doesn't belong to anyone. It's not as if there's a self to whom the pattern refers, but it's what we are is this flow of changing phenomena, but this flow or current of changing phenomena of mind and body is not occurring randomly or haphazardly or chaotically. You know, it's it's unfolding and our lives unfold uh, with continuity and uh, revealing certain patterns. So so they're there and that's that's why there is a sense and a recognition of individuality. Um, But it's understanding on another level that um, there's no abiding, there's no abiding self to whom it all belongs. You know, and this, another way of talking about this is just the understanding which is not expressed in this sutta per se, 
but I think is very relevant. And just the understanding in Buddhism of the levels of relative and ultimate truth. Uh, so just one simple example, which you know I've used many times, to illustrate the union of these two truths uh, is our experience, for example, uh, of seeing a rainbow. You know, we look we look up in the sky, we see a rainbow. It's beautiful. We haven't, you know, we're pleased and we're happy to see it. And yet, the rainbow is not a thing in in and of itself. When we look more deeply, we see really all that's there are. You know, there's air and light and moisture, and conditions come together in a certain way, and there's an appearance of a rainbow. And so this is just an example of the relative and ultimate levels. On on the relative level, the rainbow is there, and we see it, and we enjoy it. So it's not to deny that appearances arise. The ultimate level would be to see that it is an appearance arising out of changing conditions. And then we get to the, on the more ultimate level, we begin to see uh, the elements out of which the appearance comes. And on that level, there's no rainbow. It's it's just the moisture and the light and the, the air. And so self self is like the rainbow. Joseph is like a rainbow. Tammy is a rainbow. There's an appearance, and and on that level, it's real, and and we relate to it. But when we look more carefully, we see there's no there's no thing called rainbow or Joseph or Tammy or self. Now you mentioned that this process of quote unquote abiding in mindfulness is something that is a growing. Realization. It's not like, you know, per- perfectly moment to moment, every moment. And as somebody who's been practicing now for four decades, practicing seriously deeply, I- I'd be curious to know a little bit about what that trajectory has been for you, the progression mm-hmm. for you. Uh, well, in the beginning, the beginning decades, uh, it was it felt much more effortful you know it felt like uh, that i needed uh, i needed a strong effort to be mindful and the practice and i was practicing uh, often with that with that feeling although many times in the course of intensive practice it would come to a place of real effortlessness but then, you know, applying it in my life and in the world, it would take, yeah, the, I would feel like it, it took a lot of effort. Over the years, it's been more, it, there's been a shift more into a quality of relaxing into mindfulness rather than, you know, trying to generate it. Uh, and so it, it really uh, is a settling back into remembering, rather than rather than trying to get something. So that's been a big shift. You know, this whole uh, 
the practice itself has gotten much more easeful in that way. And and in the teaching, the, the way I'm teaching now also, it's trying to remind people that the mindfulness can come about through relaxation, that it's really a settling back into the moment rather than a reaching for something. But this is something you know everybody needs to learn for themselves and experience for themselves. Uh, but especially in the, in our Western culture, you know, there's so much uh, unhelpful striving. Uh, so this is, a, this is an important uh, element of the teaching, I think. <clears throat> you know, how, how, how to be, in the words of the sutta, ardent, you know, aware, ardent, clearly comprehending what's going on, but doing it in from a place of relaxation. I know 2011 is a sabbatical year for you, mm-hmm. and one in which you'll be doing some intensive retreat practice. And yes. I'm I'm curious how retreat practice plays into your life, and what you see as the unique value of intensive retreat. Yes, well, I I love being on retreat, uh, and from the very beginning, I've so benefited from retreat practice and just uh, it's kind of it's um, how to say. Although I. I did ordain many years ago, very briefly, as a monk. You know, in Theravada tradition, you can you can have a temporary ordination, uh, and I did do that once, sort of at the behest of my uh, one of my teachers, Deepa Ma, who really urged me to do it. But for me, I was never particularly drawn for myself, uh, you know, to become a monk, and so. I find that as a lay person, you know, living a life engaged with the world, it's like going on retreat. In a way, it's uh, it provides a monastic type lifestyle and environment. You know, it really uh, when when there's a certain level of renunciation of the usual you know, distractions of one's life. And there's a tremendous power in that. And so for me, it's it's a way of incorporating into a lay life periods of uh, greater renunciation and uh, an environment where it can really develop a momentum of practice, you know, both the development of concentration, of mindfulness, of all the factors, all the qualities of mind that uh, are strengthened by an uninterrupted uh, time of practice. So it's always, the retreat time has just always felt incredibly rich and opens up possibilities of understanding uh, simply because of the simplicity and non-distractedness of of that lifestyle. And so taking periods of time to do that uh, has just always been exceedingly valuable. 
Do you think that people need to be trained to a certain level before they can really take advantage of being on a solitary retreat? Uh, it prob- uh, yeah, I think that for most people it's good to have a, uh, a good foundation in practice if, if they're not in... If they're in contact with a teacher, then then I think it's possible to do it uh, you know, quite early on. Although a retreat with other people is all, is is very supportive, so I think that is valuable for people. Um, but without a teacher to to do a to do a personal retreat without a teacher, I think it's very helpful to be fairly experienced in practice. So there's a, a good understanding of what one is doing and how to work with difficulties when they arise, uh, because they always do, you know, in one way or another. Honestly, Joseph, I could talk to you for many, many hours, but I think that um, what I need to do is go on a retreat with the 36 CDs of Abiding Uh, in Mindfulness (laughs) and uh, take some time to really sit deeply with this series. Uh, I feel so grateful uh, to you for your own dedication and your scholarship and your devotion to practice and mindfulness and that you've taken the time to deliver these 46 Dharma talks on the Satipatthana Sutra. I think it's a real gift. So thank you so, 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 so much. Well, you're very welcome. I mean, it certainly was a learning experience for me as well. So it was, it was a rich endeavor. And now I'm just going to ask you one final question. Our, our uh-huh. program's called Insights at the Edge. And one of the things I'm always curious about is what people's current edges, what sort of the current challenge or evolutionary task you see in your own life that you're currently working with, what that is for you? Uh, there, are, there are so many edges. <laughs> uh, one, one edge is uh, trying to explore what renunciation means as a lay person, you know, and yeah, the, renunciation is one of the one of the paramis, you know, of a Buddha, and uh, you know, as, as as a monastic, the whole form is set up for renunciation. As a lay person, it's quite the opposite, and so just to see, okay, well. Well, what could this mean, and how can I practice it, and where is where is the edge? Where is my edge in that? Uh, so that's that's always an interesting uh, exploration. Uh, and the other, maybe another edge, would be uh, learning more and more deeply about uh, about the power of relaxation in the service of mindfulness and concentration. You know, there's the mind of doing and getting is so strongly conditioned. And so just that edge of letting go of that is, is very uh, fascinating to me. Wonderful. Well, may you have a very uh, relaxing time <laughs> in retreat. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. I've been speaking with uh, Joseph Goldstein, quite a a privilege, about a new 36-CD series, Volume 1, 2, and 3, 
on abiding in mindfulness, advanced teachings, and practical guidance on the Satipatthana Sutra. Joseph has also created, along with his teaching partner Sharon Salzberg, the Insight Meditation Course, which is available at Sounds True, both as an online course and as a home study course. Thank you again, Joseph. Thanks, everyone, for listening. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey.